Tuesday, April the 28th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, and geostrategic concerns in a world ever-changing due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'd like to welcome you to a conversation in which three Hoover Senior Fellows, Hoover's Goodfellows, offer their unique insights into what lies ahead in these uncertain times. Let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. John's also the author of the Grumpy Economist blog, which I recommend for your daily COVID reading. John, how goes it today? I'm doing great. It's sunny in Palo Alto and the lines are shorter at the Whole Foods and the Pete's Coffee where the local denizens are starting to hang out again. Terrific. We're also graced by the presence of Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow and a renowned historian and author. He's also the host of Neil Ferguson's NetWorld, a three-part PBS series on the intersection of social media, technology, and the spread of cultural movements. Neil, I read with great concern that poultry and, and beef production in the United States are starting to collapse. Does this mean that it's time to introduce Americans to the joys of haggis? No, I don't think haggis will ever catch on here. It never caught on in England, let's face it. I think it's probably a, a better plan to get those uh, guns out and start hunting. The only whole foods we have in Montana, John, are the elk that are increasingly within shooting range. Terrific. Our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. And prior to returning to the Hoover Institution, he was the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. General McMaster is also the author of Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. It's coming out this fall, but you can pre-order it now. H.R., how are you today? Good, good, Bill. I hope you're well. Good to see you, John. Good to see you, Neil. So, gentlemen, I'd like to begin this conversation with a discussion about what is going on in America's 50 states right now, about one third of which reached a crossroads this week. Uh, April the 30th, their stay-at-home orders were due to expire. You see governors handling this in different ways. Uh, some governors want to continue the stay-at-home order. Others want to open up their businesses. There's no uniform response here. And to me, this raises some questions. It's an interesting one because governors have competing pressures right now. They obviously are in the business of protecting the public safety, public's health. They also are in the business of running their own little economies and they see revenue not coming into their budgets. They're not sure what to do. And they face pressure from protests. In California, we saw a cabin fever breakout this weekend. Uh, beaches very crowded in Southern California. This is for you, Neil. You've seen this week two governors with two very different approaches. In the great state of Texas, Greg Abbott came out on Monday, did a press conference. It was just very pro-business, talked about opening up limited businesses, restaurants and, and movie theaters uh, with limited capacity. People could go back to shopping malls, but he was just very rah-rah for the economy. Then there's Gavin Newsom here in California who did a press conference a short while ago. He opts on the side of business. And his words, he every choice he says, Neil, his words are a quote, Science, data, public health will be his driving factors. So this to me begs the question, Neil, is this coming down to a very simple choice for governors and for leaders between economics and science? Well, Bill, I'm sure John will say that economics is science and there can't possibly be a contradiction between them. And I'd be inclined to, to agree in the sense that we have to solve simultaneously for a public health crisis uh, caused by a virus and an economic crisis, which is in substantial measure the result of, uh, of policies that have been adopted at the state level. And uh, I don't think one can separate these two things. If you get the economics wrong, you could end up doing significantly more harm on net uh, than uh, the virus causes. I mean, this is a, a really important point that's, I think, not well understood. Economic closures, the lockdowns that have uh, essentially made people unemployed and, and then the, the rest in place orders that have confined the, them to their homes are going to have consequences. Uh, that There'll likely be a mental health consequence to all of this. There will likely be a whole bunch of unintended consequences. Uh, and so I don't think we can create a false dichotomy here. A good policy is going to uh, try to get the trade-off right between containing uh, the virus uh, and maintaining uh, a level of economic life that's compatible uh, with well-being more generally. And I think 
going back to your introduction, that it's right that different states will arrive at different uh, policy mixes, uh, because New York State is not the same as uh, Texas, or, or for that matter, uh, Montana. Uh, in many ways, there's a great historical precedent for this. The United States has tended to cope with these sorts of crises uh, through a decentralized approach, leaving considerable discretion to governors and indeed to municipal authorities. That was what happened in 1918-19 when there wasn't a nationwide policy. In fact, there was really quite a wide range of different responses to the influenza pandemic of that period. So I don't think we should be tearing our hair out saying, oh, um, we, we should have one standard policy for the United States. It's terrible that we don't. Actually, it's a sign of our system's uh, flexibility and decentralization that we are able to take a different approach in Montana, where there have been hardly any cases and hardly any fatalities, uh, and where the risks are significantly lower than they are in some of the big uh, uh, urbanized states of the coasts. Mm -hmm. John? Yeah, um, I'll agree. I, I, when you said there's no uniform policy, I was saying that's, you know, it's not supposed to be uniform. It's the way the U.S. Uh, runs. I th so there's, I think there's grounds for optimism here. Uh, three weeks ago, this group was saying, you got to be kidding. We got to open up smart. Uh, and I think that wisdom, I, I doubt they're listening to us, but it, it is uh, common sense that has percolated in. And yes, local governments, uh, governors are figuring out that this is unbelievably damaging to economies, uh, unbelievably damaging to health. You know, they're putting off cancer surgeries because those things are shut down. Well, you know, people die of that too. Um, and, that the, and that their limit of public patience to obviously excessive uh, lockdowns was gonna run out. And uh, I'm glad to see the governors have figured out common sense. They're not just, okay, open up. They're open up in some way smart. Um, they're open up, but here's the guidelines for how you gotta how you gotta wear masks and sit far apart and so forth, uh, and not really enforce draconian. Uh, here's some guidelines. Everybody use some common sense. This is all good news of the system kind of working as it should. The bad news is, uh, I think they are then completely unprepared for what happens three weeks from now. Uh, we have also been saying we we all say. Uh, you asked the question, how how should they reopen? Well, we're full of how should they reopen, and all my economist colleagues and doctor colleagues and epidemiologists were all full of all sorts of clever ideas about how testing should work and group testing and tracing. You, you have we can't just reopen the economy. We need to hand this off to public health. Once you've got it below one in a hundred, one in a thousand people got it then you have to keep it from re-emerging with public health. And we're full of great ideas and apps and tests and trace and so forth. I see no sign of any of our governors, any of our states being ready to implement the most basic uh, parts of this, let alone the kind of creative stuff that we come up with. As an example, you know, we've been talking about tests. Where are the tests? Where are the tests? Well, turns out now there are tests. In fact, there's a lot of extra testing capacity. What are we gonna do with the tests? Um, uh, tests have been used so far. If you show up at a hospital, they find out do you have it or not, which is, we'll see if that's useful or not, but we're not yet. The concept we all have instantly, the concept everybody has who's writing op-eds is using the tests for public health. Randomly test a thousand people in a county, find out how many who have it, just to get us an idea where the geographic concentration are start the procedures of test, contact trace, and so forth. This takes time to, to set up, and, and I don't, so that's got to be the next step. And I, I see our governors able to, the one tool they have is to tell businesses to open or shut down. So they're preparing lists of businesses that can open or shut down under what circumstances. That's about the tool that they're using. Well, um, now we got to get to like the third century public <laughs> health. Uh, just get the basics of, of that, uh, all the stuff we talk about of the public health response. That, that I don't see signs uh, of being ready to go. And we'll, I'll put off, but I want to put an asterisk in. We have to think about what happens in the fall when uh, it's still with us. The economy is still in an atrocious recession. Uh, and the government paying everybody's bills remains the default thing. How are we going to possibly move to a recovery? Uh, and, and that is uh, still, that's, 
if, if how do we get through next month and getting going the public health response is still, I don't see much happening on it. Uh, thinking about how we're going to dig out of this, uh, I think is important and, and that's not going yet. Bill, before we go to HR, can I just add a really important historical perspective here? I, I, th I think the public's been led by epidemiologists as well as by politicians to expect uh, the job to be done when the curve has been flattened. And we've seen all these pretty pictures of uh, sombrero-like charts. All you have to do is kind of get that sombrero and squash it and you're done. And, and there's just no historical basis for that view of the the story. In fact, all the great pandemics have had multiple waves. In the case of 1918, 19, the second wave was actually much worse than the first. In 57, 58, there were two waves and they were about the same size in terms of excess mortality. So what I think people have got to face is that at some point, and it may well be uh, August, September, or it could be later, that there likely will be a second significant wave. It could be even sooner than that. There are so many imponderables here. Will the weather really play a part? How important will school closures and reopenings be? But I think it's pretty clear that if there's a significant return to economic business as usual, there will be increased cases and there will be increased hospitalizations. And that will come quite imminently, uh, I think, in some states. I'm not sure the public's been prepared for this. And I think a big imponderable is whether we're going to see later in the year, I think it'll probably be when the schools go back, if they do go back uh, in August, September, a significant second wave, which in some cases may require yep, new lockdowns or at least uh, new measures which will restrict economic activity. This, this is very bad news that I think people haven't fully prepared themselves for. And one last thought. John is dead right. We may be do, doing some reopening on the economic side, but the lack of really uh, effective testing and contact tracing is in marked contrast with the situation in Europe, where countries like Germany, Austria, and Denmark are going back to, to work, having much more successfully contained the pandemic to begin with, and with the testing and contact tracing in place. So when they play whack-a-mole with the virus, as it'll surely make some attempt to return there, they're just going to do it much more effectively than we will. Yeah, I want to emphasize uh, what I was what I was em emphasizing there is how do we avoid a second wave? Uh, once we've paid the price to get to flatten the curve or whatever, that's when uh, we can we could hand it over to public health to keep the embers from going to avoid the second wave. Uh, you know, the other historical antecedents are the, um, the, the various diseases that we have uh, gotten rid of, and we've gotten rid of them by once it's down to a low level, the intrusive public health can take over. But that has to happen. Other, if you just use these tools of opening up businesses, opening up schools, you're going to get a second wave. And, and to, I'm sure now we've got to bring HR into it. Uh, you know, one of the problems is the reservoir of this disease is not just national. Um, it is just beginning to spread in the in the third world. Um, I think we're supposed to call it the global south now, uh, and other places with poor um, medical uh, uh, institutions, but more importantly, poor public health institutions. That becomes the reservoir to bring it back to us, even if we got rid of it uh, in our own countries. This is why I think, John, it's it's helpful to think about how the military is coping with this health crisis and comparing it and, and contrasting it with how, how we're doing it in, in the civilian sector. M much of what you said ap applies to the military, right? <laughs> we, have, we have in the military this, this doctrine of mission command, right? Decentralized operations based on mission orders. Because when you're dealing with a, a complex battlefield uh, with, with, uh, you know, with a determined, uh, ruthless enemy, whether it's <laughs> analogous to, to, to this virus, you have to decentralize authority so commanders can make decisions based on those local conditions. You want to get them the assets that they need, you know, in, in our in the military, the combined arms and joint capabilities to seize, retain, and exploit the initiative over the enemy. And what one of the first things you learn, I think, as a military officer is hey, it's it's never really over, right? <laughs> until until the enemy admits defeat. And and if you might you may want to think about flattening the curve and having that initial success as the breakout in Cobra on the Western Front in World War II. Well, the Battle of the Bulge happened, we have to remember, on the, on the way to the Rhine. So there, there, will be, uh, there will be additional challenges, but I think the way to deal with them is, is the way, John, that you and, and Neil have discussed it, really, which is 
decentralized authority down to the local levels. And just as a governor and a county, county commissioner will consult with their medical expertise, every army division, every regiment has a regimental surgeon who is, who is advising them now. I don't know how many of you saw the 60 Minutes piece last Sunday, but in it, one of those pieces was on how the army is adapting to training because you know, you can't you can't just take a your know, vacation from you know uh, from from defending the nation, and of course in areas like basic training, advanced individual training, as soldiers come into to our military, uh, you get a huge backlog if you defer too long. So uh, there was an initial freeze, and now they're reopening uh, a lot of a lot of the military training. John, you mentioned the overseas uh, threats a, 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 as well, and I think it's it's worth pointing out that there were very few infections among American soldiers in Northern Italy, right in the center of the hotspot. The same thing in South Korea. Why? Those commanders had authority decentralized to them. They saw what was happening and they made decisions on their own uh, to, 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 to bring their soldiers in and, and protect them from infections. Now, as you mentioned, and as we saw on ships, it's quite a different matter, right? It's pretty difficult to get social distancing you know, on, 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 on a ship. Uh, but I think this is something we have to figure out in, in our military. I mean, this is not without precedent. Remember, in, you know, in, in, in 1918, you know, in, in 1917-18, I think 60,000 uh, sailors in our, in our Navy uh, died from, from, from the virus. So it, it's important because pandemics aren't going away. It's also important because bio threats are, are going to be an increasing hazard to our military. So I think that what we've invested in in recent years is certainly very important. And when I worked in a job where I helped in designing the future army, we invested quite a bit of money in research and development for rapid vaccine prototyping uh, because we knew that you know, potential enemies were, were curating, were, were inventing uh, some of the most heinous weapons you can imagine. So I think that we can learn a lot uh, from each other across military and civilian lines. But I think that what what you learn about about war, right, that war is this continuous interaction of opposites. Progress in war is never linear for that reason. The complexity of war demands decentralization and, 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 and a mission orders type approach. Commanders must continuously conduct reconnaissance <laughs> as I'm a cavalry officer. Um, to, to provide early warning of what's coming next, right? I mean, how is this, how, how is this virus going to evolve? And, and, and it's not going to be linear progress. I think there's, as, as Neil and you and John both, both alluded to, there are going to be a, a series of decisions that leaders at, at all level, levels are going to have to make. I, I just want to add one. So Bill brought up initially that the, there's this usual, economists are always the butt of everybody's jokes, but I'll throw in historians and national security experts with, you know, and the scientists know what's going on. The crucial issues here are not scientific. The crucial issues is how do you change human behavior so that we don't give each other viruses? And how do you do it at minimum economic cost? So I, I think we all uh, deserve uh, seats at the table here. In particular, I noticed in the public policy a, a um, kind of a fight between doctors and economists. The doctor's view is shut everything down until the very last case of this particular disease leaves the hospital. Well, that, that just ain't happening, uh, you know, at, and, and at tremendous cost. Uh, doctors know some things, but that they don't know about unintended consequences and, and moving human behavior around. Neil? No, I think the key issues that, that now I think we should talk about are some of those national security uh, questions that HR raised. Last week, we had a long and quite heated conversation about uh, the US-China relationship. I've been asking myself for some time, uh, what the U.S. would do if there were twin geopolitical crises, simultaneous crises. Let's imagine uh, a Taiwan crisis and a Persian Gulf crisis, or you could add in a, a Baltic states crisis. I, I think a really interesting question for HR is, does a, a pandemic, a, a common enemy, reduce the risk of geopolitical conflict or, or actually raise it? Certainly, it seems to have raised the temperature of the U.S.-China antagonism, but does that does that amount to anything more than 
than info wars, than, than rhetoric? Or, or is there a scenario in which we find ourselves simultaneously contending with a pandemic and a geopolitical crisis? In 1918, it was the tail end of a world war that then uh, was uh, uh, supplemented by a pandemic. I, I keep asking myself if we could reverse the causation, start with the pandemic, and and then end up with the geopolitical crisis. I must say, if I were an enemy of the United States, and I'd already come through the, the containment phase of the pandemic and was getting my economy uh, back to work as fast as I possibly could, I'd be quite tempted to take advantage of the fact that the U.S. is by no means ready to respond uh, to a crisis, uh, particularly a crisis in in uh, in East Asia. HR, do you worry about this? Could we find ourselves in a geopolitical as well as a public health emergency? Let me just add to that, because I, I want HR to answer, but I want to tee up more questions. Uh, 1918 was not a world of peace and harmony and singing Kumbaya together. There was a Russian revolution and civil war going on to which a lot of our countries participated. A lot of the world kind of fell apart as, as it did after the second world as well, that the hostilities we're over on the Western Front, but not not in the rest. Uh, and certainly, we are seeing um, China and Iran uh, both in in very weak positions because of the crisis. And and uh, you know, this is the time when they they might perceive us um, being paying attention to other things and and uh, grab some islands or whatever. So go for it, HR. Well, I think the answer to the question is yes. It's it's a it's a more dangerous time, I think. And I think we're seeing some indicators of this already that we have to keep a, a close eye on. Just last week, China designated two municipalities in, in, in the South uh, China Sea, stepped up their military uh, operations there, continued to militarize and weaponize the islands that they built in their land grab uh, there, uh, and then have been harassing uh, naval vessels of, of other countries, the Malaysians and, and, and others. Uh, they've also been more aggressive vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Uh, the the the, uh, the violations of Taiwanese airspace have, have gone through the roof uh, just in, in recent weeks. And so this is definitely something to keep an eye on, especially in connection with maybe a, you know, a real crisis of confidence that is heightening the fears of the Chinese Communist Party, and in particular, their fear of losing their exclusive grip on power. What better way to divert their own population's disappointment at the fundamentally dishonest and destructive way with which they handled uh, the COVID-19 crisis than to, than to precipitate an external uh, crisis that, that evokes pride in, in the campaign of, of national rejuvenation uh, that the Chinese Communist Party has, has been promoting. So I think it is a period of increased, of, of increased danger. In terms of our readiness to deal with it, I would be much more worried about it if it was 1940 right now than it is now. I mean, I think as a result of the two world wars and the Cold War that followed, our, our strategic culture has changed significantly in that we emphasize ready, active duty forces that are pre prepared to respond quite rapidly. And even though we've dramatically reduced the, the amount of force that is that is positioned overseas and in in positions to respond immediately, those forces are still extraordinarily capable relative to our adversaries. And, and the, the virus hasn't had a significant degrading effect on that. Of course, you, know, you saw how it affected an aircraft carrier, but we do have significant land-based you know, aviation, additional aircraft carriers. We have aerial refueling capabilities that are, that are, that are extraordinary. Uh, and we have forward positioned uh, land forces as part of alliances. And you know, this is a great example of how important it is uh, to, to foster strong alliances in which we, we share the burden of, of our defense. You know that that uh, it was it was Mackinder, a great geostrategist, who at the, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century warned that that uh, that at the time uh, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, the, the free world should not allow a single power to dominate the world island of the Eurasian landmass. And it's our forces operating with very capable allies, whether it's on the Korean Peninsula uh, or in Europe, that provide a significant deterrent effect to deter a would-be enemy uh, by, by convincing that would-be enemy that they cannot accomplish their objectives through the use of force. Now, why would this um, I mean, the, the, the case isn't that we aren't, that we don't have the ability. The case is that they may perceive that we don't have the will. No, I was just, I was just going to say, John, I, I think, but, but you, I think <laughs> there's a very strong chance, for example, that the People's Liberation Army is, believes their own propaganda. 
and and that they and that they now are in a position of strength. Wasn't that Goebbels who said uh, that that you're about to lose the war when you start believing your own propaganda? Let me push you on though a different issue, which is you know sort of the number one nightmare of anybody who thinks about it, and certainly this is in the defense department is bioterrorism. This is uh, you know a a little fairly mild virus put together by Mother Nature. Uh, but you know, it, it isn't, it's a lot easier to put together a bioweapon that is just, just as infectious and kills 10% of the people. Uh, it's a lot easier to do that than to put together a nuclear weapon. And it strikes me, this episode shows us that despite hundreds of plans and reports and all the rest of us, we are completely unprepared to deal with an attack of that sort. Well, I, I wouldn't say completely unprepared there now, but of course, not as prepared as we should be, I would say. But there has been a, a great deal of thought and, and organizational change that, that has occurred to, to help cope with this kind of problem set. Uh, within the United States Army National Guard, for example, there are these suburban units. Now, how capable they are, how ready they are, well, probably not ready enough. We have got to really focus on this. But I think this is one of the areas that I think Hoover can work on, others can work on, is what are the longer term lessons from this? You know, how do we apply that to make sure that we learn from this experience like we did from 9-11? And, and I, think, I think we ought to give credit at this stage to, to our colleague, uh, Secretary Rice, you know, who, I mean, talk about you know, challenging conditions then. I mean, you know, 3,000 people murdered uh, on a single day and, and an immediate, immediate effort to learn from that, apply, learn, but then conduct operations and efforts to prevent it from happening again. I think one of the lessons of this, you know, in this, in this era in which many people are arguing for our disengagement from efforts overseas as an unmitigated good, I think this highlights that these problem sets are best dealt with at their source. If there are jihadist terrorist organizations, for example, John, who are trying to cook up a bioweapon in a lab, I mean, let's go get them now. <laughs> let's, let's not wait, you know, for them you know, to work in their Petri dishes and, and, and figure out how to deliver this in, by aerosol means. I mean, let's, let's go get them now. But well, they might be the government of a country that is- But it doesn't have to be <laughs> us, is what I'm saying. It's, it's our intelligence capabilities, sometimes our military capabilities, working with indigenous partners, uh, and, and hopefully, uh, really partners who have a robust capability in terms of law enforcement, and, 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 and the ability to arrest these people and to keep it at the level of criminality rather than major military operations. But these sorts of problem sets, whether it's jihadist terrorism or whether it's, it's an epidemic growing you know, in, in, in a province in China, that we, I think we ought to agree, hey, these are best dealt with at their source before we, ha we, before we suffer catastrophic consequences. There's another dimension of the geopolitical and, and political risk that we haven't touched on, but which I think is, is relevant to, to this conversation. Uh, if I were Vladimir Putin uh, or Xi Jinping, I would be thinking that uh, it was a wonderful conjuncture that the pandemic had struck the United States in an election year, having wreaked really a, a remarkable amount of havoc on a relatively small budget in 2016, our enemies have a really enticing prospect before them, uh, a, a country which is uh, even more divided, uh, divided even on the issue of whether the pandemic's a serious problem or not. Uh, a public uh, just as reliant, maybe even more reliant on social media for its news and a whole new front in which disinformation can be disseminated and it can be disseminated, not, not in the way that it was in 2016, to, to galvanize and, and radicalize opinion on issues like immigration. Now you can actually use disinformation to disrupt the health of Americans by telling them a whole variety of, of, of quack uh, cures, uh, by spreading uh, disinformation about the nature of the pandemic, its origins. Conspiracy theories are abounding in ways that make 2016 seem really quite tame and I never cease to be shocked by the number of intelligent people I come across who, who are at least partly persuaded by some of these conspiracy theories. So I worry a lot about a scenario in which the second wave comes in uh, August, September because the schools go back and that's a classic way in which an, an infection spreads, a contagion spreads. And that's just before 
uh, the election, an election which will be happening in an atmosphere of considerable acrimony because the economy will be in one of its deepest recessions of modern times. I mean, if you're an enemy of the United States, what's not to like about that scenario? It may be disinformation that we really need to worry about almost as much as the virus. I want to push back on this hard, Neil. Um, what the Russians actually did in 2016 was a tiny budget of, of false Facebook and Twitter ads. If that could turn the election, Hillary Clinton's billion dollar budget of similar questionably accurate information and Trump's uh, similarly, you know, that we are plenty good at, at spreading inaccurate information all on our own with no help from the Russians. Thank you. What it did do was it, it became the grand national search for the bogeyman afterwards. But the actual, you know, we, we did it to ourselves uh, far more than the Russians did it to us. I agree with you. During this election, I mean, it's true that Russian content was only about 1% of all the political content on American social media. But it's also true that nearly as many people saw Russian content as voted. Uh, I'm not saying the content decided the election. It was a close election with many, many determinants. But I do think that it was significant in the sense that it created a toxic atmosphere that clouded the legitimacy of the election and condemned us to a process that culminated in impeachment, a process that only ended just as this pandemic was beginning. If you don't think the Russians achieved some disruption of our political system in 2016, I really think you haven't been paying oh, no, no. attention. We disrupted our own political system and used the Russians as an excuse to do we, it. I mean, we, we played into it and the exploited vulnerabilities are already there. And and, and I think what's clear, what's clear to me at least, is that the main objective of the Kremlin and the, and the main purpose of what I want to call Putin's playbook here is to polarize our society and pit us against each other and, and create a crisis of confidence in our democratic principles, institutions, processes, and ultimately our own identity and who we are uh, as, as Americans. And I believe that Vladimir Putin was just as surprised as maybe Donald Trump was when he won the election. <laughs> and what the, what the Kremlin did, and it's clear now from the open source and from the Mueller investigation, is that their spending and bot traffic went way up after the election. And they had a whole campaign ready to go in the case of a Hillary Clinton victory, which is what they anticipated. And that campaign was mainly around voter fraud like a, a fake campaign about, about voter fraud. When that didn't happen, then they, they shifted gears to, you know, President Trump would have won the popular vote if it wasn't for voter fraud. They, so they still use that. But then they doubled down on what had been well over 80% of their, of their effort, which was on race, to divide us on issues of race. And then a distant second was immigration policy. A distant third was, was gun control. So... I mean, they worked on it. Now, I mean, all they did is they dissed, they dusted off the old KGB playbook <laughs> and then added new technology and capabilities to it. Because if you remember back in the 1930s, I think it was, Neil, wasn't it? Where when they were really going after racial themes here as well, the old, the old Soviets, to, to divide us and pit us against each other and weaken us from within as part of the whole international communist uh, movement. So it, it's, it's not new, but it's more dangerous. Now, what can we do about it, I, I think, is what we're asking. First of all, I agree completely, Neil, that that when we talk about the cooperation among our adversaries, you know, we ought to look beyond, you know, the naval operation that the Russians and Iranians did in the Gulf, by the way, you know, simultaneously with our killing of Soleimani. Uh, I think the, I think the Iranians just quickly. I mean, I think that we're going to see more from the Iranians here in the election year. I think they really want to take advantage of the election year because they think President Trump, with his stated desire to get out of the Middle East, won't retaliate. So they're going to push it to the limit. They're going to try to get us to retaliate against their proxy forces in Iraq as a way to get us completely out of Iraq. Uh, and they're increasingly desperate as, as their currency is in free fall. You know, they, they have no revenues coming in. Uh, their own corrupt you know, practices are, are coming back to haunt them. And they dealt with COVID-19 really poorly, right? So, so I, I think all, all of these come together. But what we're seeing, and there's been some really good work recently on this, is that Russia, China, and Iran are all adopting the same sort of approach, what John was pointing out, like this, this falsehood, the conspiracy theories. And, and what do we do about it? I, I think we have to counter it and expose it. But then I think, John, you might have been alluding to this. We have to get better at protecting ourselves by being better informed ourselves. And, and, and also, I think, 
we have to inoculate ourselves by coming back together. And, you know, I was getting so depressed at the beginning when you're talking about how we're getting more polarized from each other. I hope I'm still, maybe I'm, maybe I'm Pollyannish about this, you know, but I think if we get through this, we ought to do everything we can, all of us at Hoover, but all Americans to bring our country back together, right? And to restore our confidence in who we are. Yeah, which is that really that's the source. And, you know, you said race, immigration, and guns. We're pretty good at fighting about race, immigration, and guns, even without Russians stirring up the pot. And I think they don't create the issues, they exacerbate this on the Russian thing leads to, well, we got to censor the internet and pull down fake news because it might be Russian. Ah, that's uh, letting Americans say really stupid things. Uh, and then, you know, caveat emptor on it, I think is more important. I th where I think you're right. The big issue I see in the fall is the weakness of all of these things. We've talked about weakness of China. Russia, let's not forget, is trying to sell oil, which last week went to negative $34 a barrel. Uh, they got some problems of their own. <laughs> they do have big problems. They have big problems. And, and so I, and I, I think that Whereas we were talking about this last week, so I won't, I won't, and I want to, Neil, I want to hear what your, th what your thoughts are. Or to the fall. About, mm -hmm. But we were talking about how we, we have a self-correcting mechanism internally where we, we can criticize our government. We can demand better performance. Our decentralized nature puts people closer to those who are making decisions at the local levels uh, about COVID. I mean, I, I think that that doesn't exist, right, uh, in, in China. Uh, and and it doesn't exist in, in, in Russia. Well, I mean, maybe it does to more of an extent in Russia, but not very much. Certainly, it doesn't exist in Iran. So, so I, I think I, I think that um, we are in a position of advantage in many ways if if we're not, if if we are ambitious about getting better ourselves, using this as a moment to galvanize uh, action towards strengthening our democracy. This is the, the opposition election coming up. So, I mean, I think we should talk about the fall. Uh, I think the fall is going to be chaos politically, economically, and in public health. Uh, and of our problems, fake Russian news bots are going to be pretty low on the list. It's also going to be a, a security danger because, of course, middle of October is a great time to get away with uh, bad stuff when the, when the U.S. is in, in complete chaos for other reasons. One big concern that Alex Stamos, our, our colleague at Stanford and former Facebook uh, security head, raised in, in, in a uh, discussion that I was part of a few months ago was that the, the risk to the actual election process struck him as being very high indeed. And the mitigation in the last four years uh, has been woefully insufficient. And I do think that if you put together a serious uh, economic recession, an ongoing pandemic, a second wave, and, and, uh, and an election that might well be very close, Let's not forget how close American elections have been recently. Imagine a 2000-style result uh, with allegations flying around that, uh, that some states didn't uh, actually uh, collect, uh, correctly count the votes and postal ballots went missing. I mean, I do fear a very serious mess. And uh, you're right, John, we could do this all by ourselves, I'm sure. Uh, but I don't think we should underestimate the extent to which hostile outside actors can make matters a a whole lot worse. So I, I do I do think we should be very worried about the situation in the fall. Not not I'm not seeing nearly enough discussion of this. Are we actually going to be in a position to hold uh, a normal presidential uh, uh, federal election uh, come November the third? I I wonder about that. If there's or, a second wave, or are we going to be in a position to accept the result? Uh, yeah if it's anywhere near close. I mean, we'll hold something like an election. I think that's exactly, uh, if it's anywhere close, I, I think we were gonna be in a close to 2000, except hyper worse already. Uh, and boy, let's hope this is a decisive election one way or another. And, so, and so I, we have to be a little bit of good right. news on this, which is relevant. I, Sam Abrams, a political scientist who used to be a Hoover affiliate now at AEI, uh, just published today some rather encouraging commentary on some Pew data suggesting that some of what you're talking about HR might be happening and that there is some sign of convergence in the face of crisis. I'd been looking at some civics polling data which asks Republicans and Democrats how seriously they're worried about uh, about COVID-19. And there you see a yawning partisan divide with Democrats far more concerned about it than Republicans. So I, th I think there's some uh, glimmers of hope, but no more than glimmers. But that, may be, that may be because Democrats live in New York and San Francisco and Republicans live in Montana where there isn't any COVID-19 at all. And they're kind of sick of uh, being shut down for no reason. Which is, which is important to note that, that a targeted population is going to be agricultural America 
uh, by the Chinese, and they're already doing it. And so with, you know, with the, we're, we're very focused on countering the Russian threat. The Chinese are becoming much more sophisticated. And I don't know if you've seen the reports. I've not been able to verify this yet, or you may have heard or uh, a verification of it, but the, the Ministry of State Security was sending text messages directly, you know, directly to millions of, of Americans with disinformation a, a about about COVID. Uh, and then what we've seen lately is, is how aggressive the Chinese consulates have, have have become at contacting and trying to use officials who over the time, over time with these community partnerships uh, and, and, and business deals have co-opted, right? So the so the Chinese method, you know, of 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 influence is is real. First, you know, control the narrative, right, and and sow the disinformation and uh, and and and, um, and prevent really the you know, the actual accounting of, of things from coming out. But, but, the, but, the, but the second is to co-opt elites, to co-opt American elites to advance the interests of the party. But this is a grand failure, right? Everybody can see what China's trying to do. It can be. And nobody, everybody hates China right now. This is turning, you know, Neil always talks about history. We always have, uh, in a pandemic, everyone goes and finds some poor minority group and blames them for it. Uh, the, the world narrative is this is all a China's fault and China's efforts to say, oh, we're gonna, but we're sending you masks and we're being nice to you is falling completely flat. Uh, yeah. and, and I think we have to, I think we should always just say, the Chinese Communist Party, right? I mean, I, we have to make it clear: China is not monolithic; it's not homogeneous. Some of the, of what we can do, and Neil, I'd love to hear what you think about this. I mean, it, it, it is counterintuitive, right? So you think, okay, hey, China's been waging the Chinese Communist Party's been waging a, a sustained campaign of industrial espionage against us. Well, let's deny visas. Well, how about more visas of those who are vetted? As we are in this decoupling competition, hey. I mean, if, if you're if you're a Chinese engineer, do you really want to work in China right now? I mean, probably not. So come, come work over here for an American you company. You guys have to worry that this fall will not be a competition for who can bash China harder uh, in our presidential elections. Well, that, I, I mean, I, I, I think that's that's not maybe a, that might not be a negative thing. I mean, it might be a good thing. I mean, if they're focused on the Chinese Communist Party, I think that would be good because it's something we can agree on. Yeah, we should be able to. Gentlemen, I'd like to get back to the election for a second. We started this conversation as a discussion between science and economics. And now it looks like we're about this fall, we might be looking at a conversation between science and democracy. What should the country be doing now to plan for this scenario, the Ferguson scenario, shall we call it, where September, October, it's very clear we've been struck again by COVID. We cannot have a normal democratic exercise. States do not have right in voting, electronic voting. What should the government be doing now? Should they be planning a, a fail-safe election in March of next year? What, what are your thoughts for, for on that? Well, I'm very opposed to the idea of postponing the election. And there's, there's never been a postponed uh, election, even in time of civil war. I, I think there is a, a perfectly straightforward way of, uh, of solving the problem. Um, the obvious problem being that uh, older voters will be strongly discouraged from going to polling stations if they fear infection and uh, right. possibly fatal illness. Uh, there, there needs to therefore be a ramping up of, uh, of postal voting. That's the obvious solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, John? I completely agree. We ran, a, we ran an election in 1864. We're going to run an election this year. And if uh, people don't come, then people don't come and tough luck. Uh, do what you can with the voting. But uh, this whole election thing has turned into a huge partisan legal battle. Uh, so I'm, I'm very worried that if, if you want one place where we need to declare a little bit of a truce, it's uh, the rules are what they are, try to do what you can, and then accept the result when it's over. Uh, th th that's uh, not doing that could just be an absolute disaster for the country. And HR, let's, let's close out. I want to get all three uh, good fellows comments on this, but let's just close out on the concept of leadership. You're a general. Generals have to come up with strategy. Generals have to lead. Generals have to be empathetic. They have to relate to the troops. You look at the president, you look at the governors right now. What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong in the way of leadership? Well, I think what's really important to understand is that, is that uh, first of all, you know, leaders have to give it to, the, to their soldiers straight, right? You, you don't, I mean, the, the stakes are too high. They're, they're literally you know, life and death in combat. Uh, so you don't want to create any kind of a you know a false narrative or picture of your enemy. Uh, you never want to you never want to underestimate your enemy, uh, but you also want to to make sure that uh, your soldiers and teams are confident in their ability to to win. 
to, to defeat the enemy, uh, but not in sort of a false bravado chest beating way, but but based on confidence that they have in themselves, uh, in, in each other as a team, uh, of course, in their weapons and, and so forth. But confidence is, is the bulwark against fear. And fear is the most debilitating thing that can happen to a unit in battle. And so what commanders do is they prepare units for battle by building their confidence because so much of what happens in combat, it happens based on, on your will and, 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 your, and, and psychology, um, as well as your physical strength. And, and uh, so I, I think that that's what leaders have to do is explain, and I think many of them are doing this very effectively, right, is explain the difficulty, but then also explain to the American people that, that we do have a degree of agency and influence over this problem if we work together on it. And I think you're starting to see the effects of that. I, I have seen, and, and just glimpses, right, just glimpses, of tremendous adaptation uh, and within the government in some areas, but especially within the private sector and the private sector working with the government and to reinforce government efforts. And I think we're at the end of this, we ought to take a lot of pride in that. We also ought to take a lot of pride in, in what we're seeing is the resiliency of our healthcare workers. I, that's, I worry about that a lot. I mean, there's, they're seeing a lot. You saw this very sad account of, of, uh, of an emergency room doctor who committed suicide um, uh, under, under these difficult conditions. It's going to be very important to, for us to, to help them get through that trauma. I, actually, even in battle, it's the medics and the doctors who often have the toughest task. Uh, because as, as a combat soldier or leader, you're still in the battle. And, 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 and you're not focusing uh, on the losses until you get to the point where you help people grieve. I think that's the next thing that leaders are going to have to do. When this battle's over, uh, there are going to be a lot of people who need help in the area of grief work. And it's that kind of mental preparation for combat. I mentioned confidence uh, in, in each other, uh, but it's also psychological preparation for combat and, 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 uh, and, and the psychological health of units. That's also a command responsibility. So uh, I think right now we're in the fight. We have to focus on, on, on the fight um, against it, uh, but there will be a time when we need to come together. And I think what could help us, right? I mean, grief, grief, shared is grief divided. And, and so I hope that this will all help us come together as well. Um, uh, uh, even, even, uh, even coping, you know, with the traumatic aspects of, of this experience. I agree with a lot that HR has said there, but I think we need to remind ourselves why pandemics aren't quite like wars. And uh, they, they don't give you that sense of national unity that wars generally do, at least at the, their outset, uh, certainly not to the same extent. There's also a sense in which a pandemic makes traditional leadership look strangely ineffectual. And those who, who try to lead in classic ways, insisting that it is a war, somehow don't quite pull it off. I think the heartening thing about a pandemic is the opportunities it creates for local leadership, uh, for non-public sector leadership, in fact, for ordinary citizens to show leadership, that the most impressive people actually in this saga so far have not, have not been the elected representatives, I'm afraid. Uh, it's been uh, Anthony Fauci, who's uh, consistently struck a, a note of, of realism and, and experience. Uh, and, and I do think that, that that's actually one of the advantages that the United States has over, say, China or, or, or Russia, that, that we don't actually require leadership to come exclusively from the man at the top. We, we actually want to see leadership from our fellow citizens. Uh, we, we don't want a system of, of denunciation where citizens are encouraged to rat on one another. That would be a deeply un-American and unhealthy tendency. What, what we want is to see leadership from, from our, our neighbors or from the bosses of companies. People who, who do the right thing in a crisis like this often achieve much more collectively than any one inspiring speech by, by a president. I'll, I'll just uh, follow up with yes, um, the best things we're seeing are from the private sector. Where are your tests coming from? Where are your vaccines coming from? Where are your apps coming from? Where are your protocols on how to run a business coming from? That's all coming from the private sector, not, not from the top down. That's America's a great strength and remains. Um, but uh, you asked for leadership. I would say three things. Uh, 
first, now we're talking about elective leaders, look a month ahead, not at the, what's going on right now. I'll, I'll slip back to a military analogy. I'm sure HR will agree. Even when the battle is really strong, you got to worry that they might be coming around your left flank and where your supplies coming from next week. Uh, throughout, our leaders have been playing catch up. And, and where I started this one, I don't see them yet thinking the one month ahead on let's get in place the public health strategy that's going to get us to the summer, let alone the exit strategy that's going to get us out of this horrible recession in the fall. Two, transparency. You got to be honest with us. And this is, you know, the natural inclination of any leader is to shade the truth, to try to mold public opinion and so forth. The Chinese have found out now all their population knows they're lying to them all the time. And that just makes them so much more less effective when, when they try to do stuff. Even when it's a bad truth, the transparency is important. Third, listen and decide. That's what a leader does. A leader's always getting shaded information. E even Anthony Fauci, our, our, our current saint, you know, he was telling us for a while that masks don't work, even though he knows perfectly well that masks work because he knew there wasn't a supply of masks and he didn't want to scare people and get people going. He was playing politician, not just giving the advice and letting the politicians. Everything you hear is going to be shaded. Uh, the economists play doctor all the time. We're all, and, and we shade our advice to get the policy we want. The, the the job of a leader is to listen and decide. And finally, much as I, I praise HR's desire that we get together, uh, partisanship has not ended in Washington. It's as strong as ever. You can see in the fights over the various bills, everybody trying to shoehorn their favorite policies in under the radar screen. Um, the, the chance that especially in the summer or the fall, this doesn't uh, erupt is a, in our usual horrendously partisan way. Boy, I, I wish they could all get together, but I'm, I'm, uh, those forces are so strong right now, it's hard to believe it'll happen. Okay, gentlemen, we're going to have to stop the conversation here. We'll pick up again next week. That's it for this week's episode of Goodfellas. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back a week from now with new topics, new conversation with the three Hoover Goodfellows. On the behalf of Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best in these difficult times. Stay safe. Stay strong, stay healthy. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week.